Hello and welcome to A Thriving Future with me, Hannah Temple. In this episode, I am speaking to the amazing Shamista Dettagupta. Shamista is a coach, a permaculture practitioner, an erstwhile junior professor in biology, as well as the founder of Dularia. She is a singularly rooted, soulful and compassionate individual who I had the deep pleasure of meeting through the Bioleadership Project. This conversation is an absolute treasure. It offers a really striking and beautiful example of what it means to place life at the real deep core of an organisation. You're in for a treat. Hi, Shamista. How are you? I'm great, Hannah. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Um, as we were just saying, I, um, I'm noticing the signs of spring here where I am. Uh, it's still pretty cold. Uh, it's gone really cold recently, but uh, the daffodils and the snowdrops and the tree buds are all valiantly sticking their heads up anyway. Uh, so that's it always feels like a kind of energetic time of year things start to emerge but yeah so I'm well how, how are things with you yes likewise it's springtime here it's a bit of an early spring here I'm in the mountains in the Himalayas in the base of the Himalayas in uh, Himachal Pradesh in India and uh, it, it's been an unusually warm winter and so there is a kind of tree uh, that we have these amazing rhododendrons that are trees here you know in europe and us they are uh, plants and here they're full-blown trees very old growth and they have started blossoming already which is a little early for mm. um, the time of the year and there are a lot of other blossoms also coming up. And so it's 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 lovely. And at the same time, a little bit like, hmm, wow, this is different. This is different than what it used to be. Yeah, it's, um, you're making me think of, I just finished reading a book, which uh, I've really enjoyed, which was called uh, Inheritors of the Earth. And it's um, kind of looking at the world of conservation and kind of painting a contrarian picture of how we as humans try and kind of keep things the same and, and draw arbitrary lines around different parts of history and say, okay, well, you know, at this point, this is when this plant lived here. And so we're going to, that's where it's supposed to be. And then if we look at a kind of geological level, that plant might've had a history all over the world. Um, but it's, it's offered me a kind of different lens on, as you say, that that anxiety that I often feel when I see things around me changing. I see the seasons and the plants and the animals acting differently. Um, and I suppose it's just reminded me that change is constant um, mm. and that there's not to not be anxious, but but maybe to remember the longer time frame of change as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I love what you're saying. Um, I feel like it's a balance. It's a balance of acknowledging that there is change and there are some aspects we can do some things about and there are some aspects we can do nothing about. 
and there are some aspects we don't need to do anything about <laughs> so mm. it's like uh, you know so let's let's take responsibility for all three uh, at an appropriate level so let's not go into anxiety and spiraling thoughts of negativity uh, let's not overreact um, but let let us respond that uh, you know let us not mm. pretend it's not happening yeah I think that's so wise. It really, it really seems like oh, that the the wisdom is knowing the dif- knowing the difference between those different things, right? And mm-hmm. having the wisdom to say, okay, yes, this is the thing that we we try and intervene in, and this is the stuff that we accept and observe and notice, or or whatever it is. That feels like a really a really wise perspective in for so many things. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what a start. And you've already um, responded to my typical first question to encourage people to share a little bit about where in the world they are. So is there anything else you'd like to say about this phenomenal location that you are? Can you tell us (laughs) what's around you (laughs) as well as rhododendron trees? Yeah, well, um, this is one of the most beautiful places for me. Uh, Somehow the Himalayan mountains have always had a very strong spiritual draw for me. Um, There is something about being here where I feel a sense of being at home. And um, I'm at the base of of a range of mountains, which is you know, the Himalayas are huge. Uh, so this is the Dholadar range. Uh, they're very visible from my home. Uh, they're a reminder of what you were talking about, about change being constant and yet some things being rock solid, literally, you know, mm. it's like a big chunk of rock, a reminder of also strength and resilience. Uh, there is a beautiful stream flowing behind my home i hear it all the time there is a river uh, flowing not far away from me um and uh, yeah it's a, one of the most beautiful locations i've ever lived in i i go to fill my drinking water from a, a mountain spring every, you know uh, this is just like a, a, a day or a, uh, every two-day ritual with the other people in this village which is also a way of bonding with people. Mm. And yeah, at the moment, there are many birds that are coming back here because of the changing temperatures, the seasons. And uh, I also have a very beautiful community of people uh, here where I'm part of, um, you know, I'm living with a person who, you know, my landlord, he's a natural builder. So he's uh, building with a lot of uh, wood and stone and he has learned that from one of I think one of the world's very well-known natural builders Didi Contractor she was passed away recently um, at an age over 90. Uh, So yeah my landlord is a wonderful human being I love their family they live with um, a couple cows with farming they we have vegetables growing here in the garden I have a, a very dear friend who lives in a cottage nearby who I've been working with her in her garden and we are trying to incorporate a few permaculture principles in the garden. 
and I also have I'm um, part of a pottery community here so we build these we do raku pottery and uh, raku is a kind of firing of pottery where you have very little control so to say you surrender to nature because you put your piece of pottery which you've built with a lot of love literally into the fire and when you take it out and put it like kind of shock it and take it into a much lower temperature and put it in straw and smoke it and it gets fine cracks and these fine cracks are add the beauty and you can never have two pieces of raku pottery that are identical to each other so yeah so this is like these are all the aspects of living here uh which make it a very wholesome life for me and i've chosen that um and built it with a lot of care i would say oh my goodness what an incredible place to live and i have now this beautiful picture of the vegetable garden and the mountains in the background and the stream behind you this just sounds i mean very ethereal and heavenly and the well done on uh, on finding yourself there and as you say making those choices but i also love this this pottery oh, could you say the name of the the type of pottery again yes it's raku r a k u and uh i could run over and get one of the pieces to show you um I don't know if it's relevant, but it's just something that has really been life-changing for me to work on a piece of pottery. I've hand-built these pieces and put them into the fire after glazing. And it takes days and days for this process. And then you surrender to the fire. You have no idea, you know, what's going to come out. If the cracks are too much, it will break. And mm. the cracks are just the right amount. It simply adds to the stunning beauty of this piece of pottery. And so somehow it reminds me of the fragility of life and the, the fact, like we were just talking about, there are some things you can control and there are some things you surrender. So mm. Raku pottery is uh, like surrendering to the elements of nature where you have earth in the, you know, pot, you know the material of clay, you have water, you have fire and of course air and and then the fifth element of surrender of ether so um <laughs> wow i yeah I, I would love us to return to this as we come further into the conversation because i feel like that is a metaphor for so much in relation to this conversation about what it means for organizations for us as individuals as whole societies to be living more in balance, to be living more with the greater thriving of life at the center. And this just feels like an incredibly powerful metaphor, being flung into a fire, having to kind of cool and see the cracks and maybe it breaks, maybe it's beautiful. Who knows? Um, yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting metaphor for us to return to. Um, but I'd love us now for you to tell us all a little bit before we get into some more depth, just tell us a little bit about Dularia um, and tell us about, well, whatever you'd like, really. But I'd love to hear maybe something about its story, how Dularia came into being and, and why. And, and maybe anything you'd like to say about kind of some of the 
the kind of specifics about it, you know, the, the nature of its location, its, uh, its work, maybe the type of organization that it is, who's in it, whatever you would like to share about what you think makes the, the character and the, and the picture of this organization. Thank you. Thank you. So I think I'll start with the location because it's relevant. I've just been talking about being in Himachal Pradesh in the mountains in India. So I want to start with saying that Dularia is nowhere near here. I mean, in the sense it is in the same country, this huge, beautiful country of India. But it's in the very eastern part of India, thousands of kilometers away from where I'm sitting today as we have our call. And intentionally so. Uh, so how, what's the right order? Let me reflect on that. Yeah, perhaps the story is the right way to start. So I would say the seeds of Dularia were born when I was, uh, doing, uh, a kind of, I would call it a, maybe a shamanistic ritual, a retreat in, in wilderness. I did, a um, four day solo in a forest in black forest in Germany, uh, while I was still living in Germany. So just a bit of context, I used to be an assistant professor of geobiology in a German university, the university of Göttingen. And, uh, during this time, there were two revelations that happened. One was that I, I got a strong calling to leave my academic career and go towards, um, I would say, yeah, I, I, now maybe I call it regenerative leadership back then. I didn't know these words, you know, mm -hmm. I, I was a leader of a, a small team at the university and I realized the way we were doing things was just not the way that felt life affirming. And so I made a lot of personal changes, got deep into meditation practice at that time, which was a spiritual awakening for me. And I realized that I wasn't serving the world as an academic as much as I could serve in something else. Now, that something else was very nebulous for me back then. I'm talking about 2014. Year 2014, I was still very much in Germany as employed as an assistant professor. I decided to leave my long term academic career, took a plunge into the unknown and uh, did a training to become a coach and facilitator. And side by side, I was exploring spiritually what is really what is life calling from, you know, calling from me, what's life asking of me. And at that time, I did this um, nature solo, you know, when without food. So it was uh, fasting with fasting with water in alone in the forest for four days. And there something started getting born inside of me that I, of course, you know, just like when a fetus is, you know, when, when, when it's conceived an embryo, like there is no form to it, right? It really felt like that. But I knew something shifted in those four days. I didn't know what. Simultaneously, I was coming to India. I was volunteering in a village school, a school uh, that has primarily children from an indigenous community, a Santali indigenous community in India. They are 
based in eastern India mostly, in the states of Jharkhand, West Bengal, Orissa. And uh, there are different, many different tribal indigenous communities in India that very few people know about. And when I was volunteering with these children, I, I came there as a science, kind of a science teacher, uh, somebody who was just uh, showing them the excitement of science, uh, other than what they were learning in their textbooks. I started with just taking a, a microscope um, and just show, you know, we started looking at nature through the eyes of a magnifying lens. And it was fascinating, these children were just completely drawn to nature. They could see so much like the, an ant taking a drop of honey, for example, or we would look at flowers, insects, and always without killing any of these animals. This is primary school to all the way up to class 10. I noticed how careful they were with the animals, with the insects. And eventually we did a, a theater piece called the circle of life. And in this, theater piece, every child chose to be some part of the ecosystem. So we were simultaneously also watching documentaries of one of my heroes, David Attenborough. Okay. And, uh, you know, and the children had learned through all of that playfulness about fungi and bacteria and the circle of life. And each child, I gave them, you know, we were just free choice. Each child chose what character they wanted to play in the circle of life and we they made these incredible costumes out of nature materials i mean they were so creative they would climb up a tree and get like a part of a, a banana you know for example and use that for uh, the head of a cobra for example and a peacock mm. and it was incredible to see their creativity and i've never ever experienced a group of people, no matter what age, and being a facilitator and coach. I've worked with many people, academics, scientists, corporates, never saw this incredible ability to self-organize and create something so quickly and spontaneously with natural materials. So I got fascinated with this connection, this deep inherent connection that this indigenous community has with nature the huge possibilities that they that this represents for today's day and time where we need answers quite urgently for how we will proceed with nature. And sadly, the third part, when I started coaching as a coach, I started working with adults, I started going to remote villages of the Santali community and facilitating workshops about self-confidence and leadership. I recognized there was such a burden of colonialism and such a burden of being told also with the caste system in India that they are incapable, that they their knowledge is of no use to us. They're, uh, they're, they don't have the right to be leaders uh, of, to, of tomorrow and today. So financially also being deprived of one of the lowest socioeconomical um, standards, you know, in India, plus the way in which they are employed now is mostly in exploitative agriculture, which is rice farming, where uh, industrially they are exposed to very high levels of toxins while farming. 
or they are, you know, working as labor in coal mining, which mm. is again very exploitative. So, on one hand, this incredible possibility, on the other hand, the lack of opportunity. So something got born in me while volunteering. And I started having a lot of guidance from a deep inner voice that said, do something with this community, start something. And simultaneously, very magically, the universe gave me many gifts. My parents gifted me a plot of land. Unbelievably, we found this plot right next to the school. So it's just wow. adjacent. We even share a boundary. And uh, yeah, this plot of land was devastated when we started. Uh, the soil was devastated. There was not a single beetle, earthworm, insect, crab, snake, bird to be seen on the entire plot. The trees were there was there was nothing. It was bare. It was dead. And uh, so question arise, what is Dularia? Really, what is this organization about? So at the very beginning, uh, I was very grateful and I'm eternally grateful to having met uh, Yuval Leibovic. He's uh, an Israeli uh, permaculture consultant and designer. We met in a permaculture course where I learned permaculture. He was one of my teaching assistants. And uh, he came and volunteered, gave two months of his precious time, and we came up with what is the vision and mission of Dularia uh, together. After deep connection with the land and the people and interviewing people and really understanding what are the needs, what are the desires, what are the possibilities. And so we together started this organization, which did not even have a name back then. Uh, we started with restoring the land and eventually we named it Dularia. And together with the, at that point, we started uh, engaging with the Santali uh, community, the Adivasi indigenous community. And we, yeah, decided it could be led by women. So one is, it is led by the indigenous community. That's one of our very core values and principles. Um, so we have basically four cornerstones in Dolaria. They are education, environment, empowerment, and enterprise. So by empowerment, I have men, been to so many nonprofit organizations before starting Dularia. I realized many of them, even after 30 to 40 years of existence, maybe the people involved who we are supposedly empowering, um, they have maybe a better socioeconomic status, maybe something has changed. But one thing seemed consistently missing for me when I was volunteering in many organizations before starting Guleria. And that was a sense that it is self-driven, that it's coming from within, mm -hmm. that it is they who own the whatever, the creation. 
it's very often somebody like me, for example, with full great intentions going and, you know, saying, oh, here's the vision, here's the mission, here's how we do it, here's the money, here's the this, here's the that, let's do it this way, that way. In the end, it would just be me who not only would not empower others, I would not even empower myself. I would just be a bloated version of myself, you know, at the end of it, 40 years down the line, I've become a keystone in the project and I cannot withdraw myself anymore. So one of the ways, one of the radical ways in which Duleria is different than other organizations is that me as the founder, I live nowhere close to Duleria. It is run 100%, not 100%, of course I'm involved in all uh, many parts of the decisions. I go there, I spend a lot of quality time with our team every year. But the day-to-day -day decisions, the day-to-day -day running of the organizations is fully in the hands of the indigenous community. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking us on that journey all the way back to you in the Black Forest, feeling that something was different, feeling that something was calling to you to be different in the world. And helping us see how you followed that signal, followed your gut, followed your nose to this different place. I have so many questions. I wonder if it makes it's helpful to start with just, could you tell us how you came to the name Dularia? What does Dularia mean? Why that name? Yeah, so Duleria is uh, a word that I was hearing when I started learning Santali songs. So the way I learned the language is by learning their songs and their songs are all about nature. And it's also, I started learning about the mythology, the real deep culture of this indigenous uh, community. And Duleria literally means created through love. And this love in the Santali mythology is the love the pure love between the sun and the moon that created all living beings on this planet. So Dularia is dedicated to loving all living beings on this planet. I'm so grateful to you for bringing that word love into this conversation. Um, I've been thinking a bit recently. Uh, we. I had the joy of experiencing a conversation with an Alaskan elder through the Bioleadership Fellowship um, who offered a number of beautiful pearls of wisdom to that very privileged community. And one of them was nothing is created outside until it is created inside first. And his encouragement or his reflection that yes if we if we want to see a world that is more peaceful more loving more compassionate more just the only way we can see that out in the world is by creating those things within ourselves first and i think you know so much of this this work about the the what it means for organizations to be regenerative um there are so many really important 
very practical, very visible, tangible things that we can put our hands on to say, well, you know, these are things that we can absolutely do. And I think the work around empowerment, I'd love to turn to in a minute as something kind of, okay, well, there's, there are things happening. There are things that you are doing or what practices, behaviors that you are um, instantiating as a group and as a team. But it feels like what I'm hearing very much is that there's a huge amount of attention that's been paid to where is that coming from? To is there love inside that allows us to be loving on the outside? That if we kind of focus only on the, the tangible, visible signals, then we're destined to kind of miss the point. We're destined to, to recreate some of the same challenging patterns that we've seen before, unless we get into some of this work on the inside. I, I wonder, yeah, what, how that sounds to you, whether you, what, what comes up for you as I say that, whether you agree, whether there's something else that you would say about the role of love in Dularia and, and the role of love in regeneration. I 100% agree with you. I often say also when I'm working with my coaching clients, working with myself, that the seed you plant is the fruit you get. Simple law of nature. You cannot expect to plant a seed of frustration, anger, violence, incoherence, lack of integrity, and expect to reap fruits of joy, abundance, and regeneration. Regeneration starts within. We must know in every moment where are we acting from. And that is a moment for moment for moment awareness, not something that you decide today this is the right thing to do. Today, something might be the right thing to do. Tomorrow, it may be the wrong thing to do. Mm. It's not what we do. It's who we are. Where are we coming from as we are doing what we are doing? The fruits we get will be exactly of the same energy as the place we are coming from. If it is a place of love, and for me, I define love as a place which how do I say love? You know, love is the absence of fear. And what's fear? Fear is not just I'm afraid. Fear is anything that is reactive. For example, we were just talking about the rhododendrons blooming too early. Now, if I start taking all kinds of action to, you know, minimize the blossoming of rhododendrons or the harvesting of rhododendrons and activism and take out all kinds of propaganda about it. And if I'm coming from a place of fear that, oh, my goodness, I'm so afraid what's happening to our planet and, oh, my God, this is so urgent and all da 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 da. I'm acting from a place of fear. I'm actually planting more seeds of disaster with every action I take. Instead, what if I stop and ask myself, where, what do I really love? 
what would love do? Maybe there, maybe love would do nothing. Mm. Love would do something. Often love does minimally. And I, I'm thinking of the people, and I totally put myself in this camp, who kind of recognize the truth in what you are saying, but nonetheless sometimes find themselves feeling fear or noticing, mm, actually, maybe as they hear these words from you, Maybe I, maybe I am acting from fear. Maybe this work that I am doing, I'm off, you know, whatever. I'm imagining a person here. You know, I'm, I'm a sustainability officer in an organization. I'm really trying to make it do something better to cause less harm. Maybe there's someone out there who's giving all their time voluntarily in an initiative that they think is going to do some good. But there is, if they ask themselves deeply, there is a seed of fear at the root of that, a fear for the future of our planet, a fear for the future our children and grandchildren inherit. What would your suggestions be for what to do with that fear once it's been acknowledged? Oh, such a beautiful question, Hannah. I, I love, uh, there is a quotation by Nelson Mandela, and I may be misquoting him right now, not saying it perfectly right, but what he says is, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing things in spite of fear. Mm. So mm. love to me too is that. Awareness of fear is the first step towards love. Like you said, if somebody is aware of their fear, that is already love. Mm. Secondly, we are all, we are human. We have been born in this human body with fear. It is, it's a, like a very real part of us. I'm faced with fear every single day of my life. What I would suggest is take a pause. Take a pause and observe the fear. Send compassion to that fear. Mm. And perhaps in that pause in that silence will come an answer that is beyond fear and often that happens with me and Valeria often there are times when I'm terrified this year I was terrified again I'm always terrified at Valeria I'm like always every year I think that organization is going to fall apart I'm not there <laughs> There's no money, we're running it. You ask me what kind of organization it's, there's no even, we're not even properly, you know, registered in some ways. We tried to be registered as a nonprofit. I realize it's not the right way for us because of all the political and corrupt uh, structural influences. So right now it is literally just registered as part of my for-profit coaching organization. It is, it is a mm -hmm. non branch of that yeah in the sense that not for profit for me as a as a as an individual but certainly for the well financial well-being of our community so in that sense it is a for-profit organization it is registered currently simply under my coaching organization so most of the funds come from my 
soul solo and entrepreneurship which mm-hmm. is funny and uh, so fear is a real part of our daily activity and life we don't know where the next money is going to come from we have no idea whether the things we are trying are going to work i have been told multiple times by experts that we're going to fail um this year again i put huge amount of my savings into this organization to build it up to a, a point where we can start hosting people at Deloria. so really invested uh, you know for me a large fraction of my savings mm-hmm. on yet again and, and then when i had you know i spent two months there and we it, it, we transformed Dularia from a place that was looking in shambles to really a beautiful place with so much aesthetic beauty with art with mud building with everything that we could give to the farm and all of a sudden one day comes and it's time for me to leave mm-hmm. can you imagine the level of fear of attachment of all that money I've put in from my, you know, solo sole proprietorship into this organization, leaving it in the hands of a community where I'll tell you it's the second radical thing we do in Dularia, nobody gets a salary. Mm. To be financially regenerative took a second radical step after watching and observing many organizations. We wanted to keep our overheads minimal. Secondly, salaries make people dependent. If I were to offer salaries, we would have had so many members of Bularia. I would be able to get so many more awards. Right now, I don't get any awards because when I apply for them, they ask, what is the impact of your organization? How many people does it impact? And my answer is four. And they laugh, you know, they're like, who the hell are you? (laughs) (laughs) And I say four is all we can impact because we're doing it with minimal funds. And our idea is that anybody who joins will join voluntarily. No matter from what socioeconomic background they are, people in our organization join voluntarily. There is no fixed employees. Uh, right now, we are in the process of having our very first fixed employee, um, you know, who will simply take care of the garden and the building and the infrastructure. Up until now, we were all volunteers, 100%. Nobody gets a salary. So imagine just letting go of this, 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 this thing and just saying, okay, now I'm leaving. Bye. Uh, mm. I'm gone now for the next several months leaving and going very far away and leaving it in the hands of whoever wishes to come when they come. So there's no like, oh, everybody, some will come at this time and this day. Our organization is run 100% voluntarily. Our indigenous community come and go as they see fit. So it's scary as hell. I was Mm. terrified. I came here to back to Himachal, to my home and I couldn't sleep for a couple of days, but still I knew deep in my heart that this is what feels right for us. I'm not saying it's right for every organization, but for Duleria, it's an experiment. It's an experiment. I'm willing to fail. I'm willing to fail massively. I'm willing to fall flat on my face, but I'm not willing to not try. Mm. So 
acting from love does not mean the absence of fear. Acting from love means constantly being faced with your deepest fear and yet taking what you've seen, that what comes from deep within as the right action. I mean, it sounds phenomenally brave. It sounds phenomenally like it requires a huge amount of deep digging into yourself to find a trust, to find a, a sense of surrender, as you say. And I, I, want to, I want to come to that, but I want to just, before we come, because I think that's a, that's a chunky thing, um, I would love to just hover briefly on this point you make around no salaries. No salaries, we, for you have felt that that is, and you collectively have felt that that is the right thing for Dularia is to not have salaries with the exception of this possibly new employee. Could you tell us more about how that, how that works, why you felt that was right for you, how it has been the right choice, you know, what have been the implications of that good, bad challenges with, with working that way? Yeah, so like I said, the four cornerstones of Tularia, one of them is enterprise. So when I was deeply connecting with this community of Santali Adivasi uh, people, I realized that there is so much potential in this community and yet very little opportunity. So the only opportunities that Santali people in, in that village community have often, I'm not saying that's the only one, but there, it, there are coming up, you know, different opportunities. But most of them are, employ, you know, employment. The goal of education for their children is, oh, one day being employed as a doctor, as a nurse, as a, so as a teacher. How many such jobs are really there, especially in a very mm. corrupt community? You know, there's this corrupt system in India. Opportunities are so less. So really what we wanted to do in Dularia is demonstrate, hey, you can make your own income. You can stand on your own feet. Nobody needs to come and be your employment giver. You can develop your own opportunity to and with the skills you have already you don't have to you know perhaps you can gain a few more skills so what we do with Dularia is we provide a lot of opportunity for learning a lot of opportunity for personal growth a lot of mentoring a lot of you know bringing in internationally known experts on permaculture natural building natural farming um yeah everything we possibly can on entrepreneurship but we we don't give salary because in a way salary is a dependency money is coming from somebody else that mindset has to change the mindset is i can just like in a old growth forest if you ask me what is regenerative regenerative something that can withstand the tests of time for centuries and for generations mm -hmm. to come. Today, I can choose to give salary. What happens when I die? Mm. Who's going to give the salary? 
today I could set up an organization where there are donors and from abroad or from India. What happens when the donors decide not to donate anymore? How is that really going to sustain itself in the long term? So a radical experiment in Dularia is not to give salaries. And all of us have come to this decision collectively, including people who are on this lowest socioeconomic scale of India. Mm. And India is one of the poorer countries of the world, right? These are not people who are rich, but they have said, we want to stand on our own feet. We don't need to be answerable to somebody else. Not even to me, not even to, they call me Shor Mishthadi. Yeah. They respect me, they love me, but I don't know, you know, own mm-hmm. them and they owe me nothing. We work together as a community. So salary, not giving salaries also stands for a different way of working with hierarchy. Because money can be really, money is like fire. You know, we were talking about Raku pottery earlier. I tell, I talked to her, we talked in our team recently about this. Money is like fire. It can either burn or be used for producing something absolutely beautiful. So we need to work very mindfully with money. So yes, it has come with massive challenges because, you know, not being salaried, our team members cannot give their full time to the organization. We grow very slowly. They come when they can. They have to do their work of farming. Uh, And, you know, we were talking, we are slowly transitioning from chemical toxic farming to natural farming in Dularia. We are demonstrating on our land it's possible. But team members of Dularia themselves still have to work as laborers on toxic rice farms, simultaneously to working at Dularia for building natural farming. Mm. It might sound like a contradiction, but for me, it is a way in which we can transition in a gentle way. Yeah. It doesn't have to be one or the other. One is temporarily because they need to make their income. They need to have their sustenance, basic sustenance, and slowly side by side develop an alternative where slowly stand on their financial feet. But it takes time. Mm. So in terms of, you know, a longer term vision, as you say, and without having had these dependencies built in, it would mean that this can really continue on the long term like an old growth forest, that at some point it becomes a self There is enough sustenance being produced by that land in terms of food, materials, income of different kinds, that that would sustain those people who are currently giving their time to the land. That would be the the kind of wish is that this is then the example of how people can stand on their own and not need income from outside. They can create something that really can last for the long, 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 long time. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why I start with four people instead of having 20 or 30 members of our community Mm -hmm. or hundreds or, you know, a lot of these social impact reports ask for the numbers and then I say four and then that's already we're kicked out the door for most of our grants and awards Mm. Um, 
But the thing is, if four people, even if one person from the community can be an example of an entrepreneur who has stood on their feet with indigenous wisdom and knowledge and full coherence and full adherence to that, that is already like a shining diamond with purity. You know, crystals in nature, they form pure crystals attract other pure crystals. So if we can have one pure kernel, then there can be other examples and this can happen over time you know so we started with four and hopefully once these four stand on their feet there will be more there will be mm. room for more plus we started on a tiny plot of land we're less than an acre in size Duleria's actual physical land is less than an acre in size now each part of that plot each centimeter of that plot is planned out as a demonstration plot that addresses the e-education part of our cornerstone. Now, education, not in the typical sense the word education is often used, but I once read that education comes from the Latin root educare, which means to remind. Mm. Remind the possibility that people already know deep inside that nature is regenerative give people an experience of remembering when they come on the land that it's possible to grow food that is wholesome that it's possible to live in harmony with insects with birds with snakes with mud with the soil so that's what education means for us right so a tiny plot can have massive you know, um, effect and influence because everybody who comes there feels it. They take it back with them, right? So mm. our tiny plot will never give us enough financial sustenance, but our farmers, now slowly we have farmers joining who are saying, hey, if you guys can grow rice that way, I'm noticing my soil is dead and I want my soil to live. I don't want to die of cancer. I don't want my children to die of cancer and skin diseases. So let me adopt this way. Mm. So this is the way Dularia multiplies very subtly. We do have, we do no propaganda. We do no, you know, we don't go to neighboring farmers and say, hey, look, we are doing it this way. You should adopt our ways. We're like, no, our neighbor is using kilos and tons and tons of urea and pesticides. Mm -hmm silently observe but he is observing too yes yeah he's observing oh my god look at that neighboring plot they are managing to grow rice without using any fertilizer or pesticides they are managing to have a flourishing ecosystem where snakes and birds and burrowing crabs and earthworms are abundant whereas they are completely missing from my land nobody's mm. They'll be reminded. So that's how in the long term we hope that this can be also financially sustainable. Yeah. And not just sustainable, but regenerative. Mm. I would love to talk to you. So you've on a couple of, there are a couple of ways in which we've talked about smallness about starting small, um, about the small plot, 
a small number of people, maybe there's something about smallness and, and also slowness in what you've been talking about. And I hear in that uh, a permaculture principle of, of small and slow solutions. I wondered if you would like to say anything more about size and smallness and, and also the role of permaculture. So you've talked about permaculture, and I think a lot of people will think of permaculture as something to do with gardening. And that clearly has relevance to the, the land that you're working. But I also know permaculture is a set of principles that can apply to all sorts of different systems and items and processes and communities. I would love it if you could say a bit more about permaculture, its role in Dularia, in regenerative organizations, and maybe if you want to say anything more about smallness or slowness. Hmm. Yeah, I think we can really visit tw 20 permaculture farms on this planet and all 20 will look completely different. So permaculture is not, uh, as you said, a gardening methodology. It is a way of life. It is uh, some core principles and values, and it is basically deep observation of nature and imbibing the wisdom of nature in every single thing you do. Because nature is inherently long-term. Nature is inherently regenerative. Nature knows what we, you know, don't even have a clue about. So in Dularia, with as for permaculture, we don't even adhere to all the different, you know, some people may say, oh, why did you build this this way and your toilets are not that way and this and that. It's not like a typical permaculture farm. We say, no, that's not important. What's important are the values. The first question in Dularia we always ask before doing anything, how will this impact planet Earth? How will this impact the community and the people? And are we being fair? So these three core values, if we can live by them, I feel like you've got your design. The design mm -hmm. is something that comes later. That's a strategy, right? And we can have multiple strategies for the same values. So when it comes to smallness and slowness, I would say that has been for me the biggest lesson of Dularia in my lifetime, spiritually. Perhaps by just the fact that it has been done by just my meager income, which is, you know, as a sole entrepreneur and also I try to live a slow and regenerative life where I don't compromise on like pushing myself and, you know, uh, trying to earn the most or uh, maximize. There's less money. When there's less money, things go slow. And I've seen the value of that. Because what we do in Bularia and what I've learned is you take one tiny step and nature will take 20 towards you. Mm. As long as your step is in complete alignment with nature, with love. For me, love and nature are the same. So well, I'll give you an example, right? In the beginning, we had I had very limited savings. I was not even earning at that time because I had quit not only my 
academic career, but I had also moved back to India. I was literally homeless. I was like a nomad with a backpack and did not have an established coaching clientele in India. And at that time, I decided to start Valeria. Everybody told me I'm insane. Um, I had limited savings and I said, hey, what can we do to restore this plot of land? So Yuval Leibovich, my Israeli, very uh, generous Israeli uh, consultant, part co-partner, founder in Duleria at that time. He and I, we, he mostly designed this amazing swale system, a swale and bun system, simply to hold rainwater. And then we added a huge amount of rice straw and some rice husk and some compost and some biochar and we planted a few nitrogen leguminous plants moong to be specific it's a legume we didn't have enough money or bandwidth for anything else we and we had a tiny team we had two santali women in our team so we did all this work he gave two months of his precious time. I gave everything I had, not only my time, but also a chunk of my savings. And then we left it. There was nothing more to do. We waited for the monsoon rains to come. And I went back to Dularia. In the meantime, our beautiful Santali ladies, they had uh, harvested the moong. It was such an experiment at that time. I was still living in Germany. So they would send me WhatsApp images so amazing you know of moon being harvested and i came back in july expecting to have to plant a lot of trees because that's how usually such places restore themselves right we have to plant trees i came back having to expecting to oh my god i have no idea where i'm going to get the money from and because this is labor intensive it's going to be tough blah 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 to go to the nursery he had a huge list of trees we need to plant Yuval and i came up with this list he was back in israel by that time i go there and i see to my amazement the birds have brought the trees <laughs> all we had to do was make the land fertile the birds love it they pooped on it and there was a primary forest that came completely on its own the children loved Dularia, so they came and spat some fruit tree seeds there while playing around. The birds brought the rest, and the earthworms did their work. Mm -hmm. And I came back, and I didn't plant a single tree. I just was stunned by the gift of nature. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to spend a penny. We have a primary forest on Dularia till today which is 90% brought by birds. And slowly, slowly, slowly now we're planting a few fruit trees. We're pruning the primary forest and planting the fruit trees. We have wood from the primary forest trees that have grown so tall and so, you know, so quickly. Uh, and they gave nitrogen to the soil. They gave shelter to the birds. It happened on its own. Mm. So that's the magic of slow steps. That's the magic of humility. And I feel like that connects us so strongly with where we started in this conversation, this idea of 
how do we sense into the wisdom of when to act and when to not act? When to, I mean, not acting is also an action, right? But, you know, when do we choose to be a little bit less center stage and to allow things to emerge on their own time frame, in their own ways, to see what forest came before we put, you know, start planting our own. That feels like, yeah, a wonderful example of the wisdom of that, of that discernment of, ah, here is a space where maybe we can, we can be less acting and more observing and allowing. And I want to take us back to another theme, which I think has run through all of our conversations so far and relates a lot to a lot of conversations that are going on in my work at the moment as well with other organizations. And it's this idea about trust. And for me, it it feels kind of linked to our conversation also about fear. For example, in the philanthropic space, which also connects to what you were talking about earlier as a kind of charity, Potentially, you know, you had the opportunity to become an NGO and to be in this place of asking for grants from philanthropic institutions. Um, I've been kind of getting to know that sector a bit more and grappling a bit with some of the challenges that they face around trust. Okay, we are going to give this money to this organization, but how can we trust that they will use it well? How can we trust that this is a good investment for us? And a lot of it comes from a, it seems to come from a, a fear, a fear of making the wrong decision, a fear of um, a fear of things not going as they'd wish, a lack of trust in other people to make choices that we would agree with. And so much of what you have talked about in terms of the way that Dularia has evolved and how it operates now seems to me to be extremely trusting, trusting that things will come along, trusting that the people who are not being paid and have no contractual obligation to do anything, that enough will be done and that this will be done in its own time. Could you say some more about where that trust comes from? how you tend to it, maybe some of the moments when it's been hard to feel that trust or what can you teach us about trust? Wow, such a beautiful question, Anna. I feel like, yeah, you're absolutely right. The trust is very closely related to fear and love. Um, I, I believe that people who don't trust others are those who don't trust themselves. So we have to first learn to trust ourselves, which is a huge task in itself. Because I don't mean trust the mental content in you, but I mean trust your intuition, trust in the source, trust in life itself. And that takes a lot of inner work. For me, it's been a long, long journey of, I would say over 10 years of uh, meditation, Vipassana, Vipassana meditation practice. I'm incredibly grateful uh, to having learned Vipassana meditation from S.N. Goenkaji. 
10 years of consistent practice, so many silent retreats, mm. so many, so much inner work, consistently, consistently. I would say, Hannah, my work is, I would say, 90, more than 90, 95% inner and only 5% outer. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, it is huge, 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 huge investment in inner work. Um, trusting is not easy. Like for me uh, with Duleria, it's been constantly a journey of trust, leaving things. You know, I don't even own a key to Duleria. It's completely <laughs> land and everything is in the hands of our team. What an amazing representation of your trust. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't live anywhere close by. So mm. anybody could be fooling me. So I've been told by people, oh, you're sometimes I transferred huge sums of money. I I do things very intuitively. And others trust me too. Somehow mm. it's a crazy result of that. I've I've noticed, I don't know if it's crazy or it's like miraculous is the right word. Every time we really need something, I reach out and People are dying to support us. It's like people trust me like nothing. I mean, it's like, why do you trust me? I sometimes ask. You don't even know me. Mm. And people say, no, we have the feeling you are doing the right thing. So if I didn't trust others, I don't think others would trust me. It is because they sense in me that I trust myself. I trust my own wisdom. I trust my gut. And I also trust that if I am going wrong somewhere, then sometimes I really truly believe that you will never discover cracks in a system if you don't trust. It, it, what I mean by that is trust is like a, a juicy liquid that, that you know, comes through the cracks and reveals the cracks. So sometimes by trusting, I'm, I'm, you know, some people might call me naive, mm -hmm. but it is when I trust and there's so much love that anybody who is being misaligned, anybody who's even tending to cheat will be, you know, so overwhelmed by the love that they will say, oh my God, how can I possibly cheat this person who loves me so much? And they come out with the truth they on their own will come out with the truth you don't have to go and nosy around and check their accounts and do all of that mm -hmm. so there's a difference between i think that people who have difficulty in trusting have a difficulty in understanding and discerning the difference between trust and control you can trust but you can never control control is coming from fear Trust is coming from love. So trust the process. Trust life. Things break like the Raku pottery. Something beautiful will come out of the cracks. So in Duleria, we have made many mistakes. There have been many times where probably I have over-trusted. I've maybe wasted some money, maybe wasted some time, maybe... There, you know, if you can even call it a waste, because everything ultimately mm. is what you make out of it. Yeah. 
on every, every single crack and mistake. So trusting is paramount and essential to doing any work of any quality in this world. Because without trust in life, you will be constantly trying to control. You'll be terrified. You can't sleep well. You are completely working from the ego, from the thought, from the mind. So how can you do anything without trust? Trust mm. is vulnerability. And most people are terrified of being vulnerable. They're not so terrified about what will happen to my money because many of these people, philanthropists, have a lot of money. They are more afraid of what will it represent to their self-image if they, you know, that's my guess. I'm not, I'm not one of them, so I don't know. But I can say from my own life, you know, sometimes my fear is like, oh my God, I've just given so much money to one of our team members to do this work. What if he is putting some money aside and cheating or doing something? The worst fear of that is losing face, actually. If I really mm. deeply trust mm. I'm so attached to that silly face of mine that I've made so much out of that face that people will say you were an idiot. Ultimately, my deepest fear is not that I will be on the streets without money. My fear is more, you know, if I look very deeply inside myself, the, not my fear, the fear of my ego, I would say, to be more yes. precise. So, yeah, so this is a work of a lifetime, trust. Learning to trust is learning to be vulnerable. Beautiful. And... It's so wonderful to see in Dularia so many of those examples of trust, you know, writ large, so clear to see, as you say, the physical distance between where you are and where the organization is, the lack of salaries, so many of these examples which just live this, it will be what it is and we will see, and a trust in the people who are involved, a real trust. And you know, this, I think another word that we haven't said so much on its own today is is power. And we've talked, you know, I know empowerment is one of the kind of four pillars of, of Dularia and its work and, and its identity. But there's something I think that feels like the most empowering thing at, of all is to be trusted, right? And I remember um, as a as a young consultant, um, early in, in my career, someone gave me a book called The Trusted Advisor. And essentially, the main message I can remember from that was, you know, when people are, are looking for support or something, they're looking outside of themselves for something, what they are not looking for, really, even though they might say they are, they're not really looking for someone else to provide the answers. What they're really looking for is for someone to help them to go back in and to and to find the answers in themselves. And that really one of the most empowering things any of us can ever be can ever happen to us is to be like to be asked for our help. You know, like it's not what's empowering is not giving something to someone. It's it's trusting them. It's asking them for their thoughts, asking them what they think about the problem that they've just they've just raised. There's something so deeply empowering in the trust that you are embodying in this work. And it feels like, yeah, I can almost 
feel like the fear of so many of the institutions we've created, so much of the culture that we are surrounded by that goes, but if I give, if I trust, if I, if I let go of this, if I let go of this control, then as you say, that damage to my ego, that potential risk of falling on one's face, like, oh no, the fear and anxiety of that, but actually seeing that as this incredible gift that you're giving, incredible gift that you're giving to empower others. Um, yeah, I think power is just a massive theme in so many organizations. And this way of looking at it as giving trust is this, this great gift, this great empowerment. Just feels, it feels like a, a really deeply right thing to do when we're thinking about power. It feels like we've been w- walking around the edges of how do we negotiate power and trust feels like a massive part of it and fear of trust Mm, absolutely absolutely oh my gosh yeah so much of what you said rings so deeply true for me like i said before starting Dulari, i visited so many organizations i volunteered in many organizations and i i noticed that lack of trust and along with that lack of trust came a lack of empowerment true empowerment. Mm. and i do not see myself as somebody who empowers others i see that we all empower ourselves so Dulari is an, is an organization where everybody is empowered. Me, our members, our visitors, everybody is given that level of trust. And everybody is given that level of respect that you know your answers. No visitor is made to feel small because they're not recycling or they're not planting trees or they're not living a green regenerative life. Everybody is welcome with equal level of love, equal level of trust that they will take the steps when the time is right for them. And they will take the steps that are right for them. So there is no giving of advice. There is no, you know, hand-holding of anybody that happens. People absorb, and as I said, they get educated, which means reminded. And the trust is in the reminding. And not we, I'm not the reminder. Nature is the reminder. Love is the reminder. Source is the reminder. So, yeah. Empowerment really is not power over, but literally being in power. Everybody is in power when they realize that they are this, they come from the same source, the same power that has created all of life on this planet, mm. from a leaf to a rock to a river to the sky. We are brilliant because we come from the same source we are of the same essence the same substance everybody has all the right answers including a child including an adult including an aged person nobody needs to be told what to do Mm. so 
Yeah, we stand for empowerment, not just we don't. I mean, sometimes I think we write things like for grant proposals or whatever, like we <laughs> like to empower this tribal indigenous community. But I would like to even stop writing any of those things because we are all empowered, you know? Yes. Yeah. I have been so empowered by Duleria, like learning how to build with mud and straw from our team. I have learned how to recognize herbs and vegetables that are edible that I can forage. They empower me way. I, I can't say who empowers whom. Nobody empowers anybody. We are all mm. empowered. Mm -hmm. And that has to come from trust, from trusting ourselves. Our team has to trust themselves. I give an amazing example. So, uh, one of the top institutions, like a very prestigious uh, institution in Kolkata, which is the biggest city near, closest to Dularia. It's called Victoria Memorial. It's a very, you know, colonial, traditional institution. And they wanted to represent um, an organization on Women's Day. And uh, so they invited Dularia because somehow they found out that our organization is led by an indigenous woman. So, well, as always, I'm not there. So we were invited to go and speak on the podium in this very like fancy hall with very, you know, high society people coming in the audience. And I just said, I'm, yeah, we'd love to take your invitation, but you need to know that I'm nowhere there. So I won't be able to attend. So what happened as a result was our team, led by our uh, Santali uh, team members who had never, ever spoken on a microphone, forget about an air-conditioned hall with a huge life-size poster of Dularia and their faces on it. Wow. They went on their own. Our youngest team member, she's like 20, I think 20 at that time, bought all the tickets, handled the finances, booked the hotel room. They traveled on their own. Minimally, we had conversations on the phone. They asked me, oh, Didi, what, Didi is older sister. They call me older sister. What should we say? What should we do? And I said, be yourself. You know all the answers. My only job on the phone was to say to them, you know all your answers. You know all the answers. All right, if you really feel like saying a few things to me, let's talk about it now. And all I did was say, you know all the answers. And our uh, Santali tribal indigenous leader, Saraswati, she went there and blew people away. She spoke on the microphone as if nobody, she's done it all her life. People asked her, oh my God, you must be educated from a very fancy college. Or she said, well, I'm barely school educated, managed to barely get through school. And yeah, there's a YouTube video online of her speaking, of our entire team speaking. They went wearing their indigenous clothing. They didn't dress as anything other than themselves. And they did it. This is power. Mm. Yeah, true power. So yeah, this power lies in everybody, Hannah. So this is in you, in me, in everybody. And we must trust ourselves, we must trust each other for this power to emerge. And this power is not something that we need to be proud of. This is the power, like I said, that makes a leaf unfold. The same power that 
rotates the sunflower towards the sun. It's the magic of life. So, Mister, I think I could listen to you all day and night. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking so beautifully about. I think what I'm really, really feeling is the intentionality of every small moment, every small choice that you have made in relation to Dularia, that all of those things matter, that how you took that phone call with your colleague, how you chose to respond as they were asking for you to suggest an answer, how you have positioned yourself in the country. Maybe that's not such a small thing, but all of these small moments, small decisions, when they come from a place of trust and love with nature at the heart, then everything sort of unfolds from there. There is things become less difficult as you take these individual steps from that place. And I say that with a bit of hesitation because, you know, we've discussed that it's not that there are no challenges, that doing this is completely without challenge, without difficulty. I've definitely heard you speak to the fact that that, that is, that can be the case, but it feels like they, they're getting less and less or they're, you're not creating more challenges for yourself in the way that so many of the choices that we notice ourselves making when they come from a place of fear, they lead us to places of great challenge, greater difficulty, more fear. And it feels like you have really shown us an example of how to, by taking each of those small steps seriously, build ourselves into a, a place where the long-term future becomes one of greater ease, greater harmony, greater synthesis. And what a beautiful prospect for us all to be aiming for. Um, just as we close, I wonder whether you would like to offer any any final pieces of of wisdom if you if there are people listening who are you know within organizations of their of their own within organizations that are not of their own I mean we're all part of organizations in all in loads of senses as families as schools as religious organizations what would be, do you have any final pieces of wisdom for, for those, those people to encourage them around the kinds of things that they might want to practice, the kinds of things that they might want to explore, the kinds of ideas that you might want to plant and seed? Um, you talked a little bit in this conversation about some of the practices that you found supportive for you, whether they were solos or meditation. What would you say to those people who are looking and saying, oh, I want to follow in this path. Where do I start? Oh, lovely question. I would say of, I, can, I can sort of distill it down to two things. And I call them weeding and seeding. <laughs> weeding is gently, gently, consistently remove all that is not serving you that is not life affirming. Gently, you don't have to do it all at mm. once. But you know, I often do this uh, 21 day practice when I notice I've got into a habit that is not serving me, that's not life affirming, that is 
uh, making me less of who I am, whether it's a food habit, whether it's a addiction, whether it is a being too much on my phone, whether it is uh, interference of any kind. Sometimes do this 21 day reading practice where I will say for the next 21 days, I will abstain from that. And I will observe myself as I slowly attempt to abstain from that. I will not be nasty to myself if I fail one day or two days. And often I ask for support during this process. I'll ask a friend or a partner to say, hey, would you be my accountability partner as I try to weed something out of my life? Mm. So really prepare the bed of your Garden of Eden. And I feel like this is relevant for life itself, like not just what, like you said, every, everyone is in some organization or the other. So weed out what does not serve you, what is not life affirming, and plant seeds of small coherent action. And by coherence, I mean that is 100% aligned to your true nature, to who you truly are. Ask yourself the question, what would I do right now if I was not afraid? What would I do right now that is truly life-affirming, that is so coming and aligned to my soul's wish? Could be anything. But take a small step within the next two weeks. I usually put my, give myself a two-week boundary so don't make it endless. In the next two weeks, I will take one small coherent action. Those are the seeds I plant. That is, have three basic principles. One is completely aligned to who I truly am with my soul's wish and desire. Two, it takes me outside my comfort zone, so it's somewhere where I will grow. Mm. Three, it's doable and actionable within the next two to three weeks. My goodness, what phenomenal ideas. I adore that. Weeding and seeding. Thank you so much, I think, for anyone, anywhere. That is such beautiful, amazing advice. It can't, yeah. Thank you. So, Mr. Thank you so, so much for your time, for your deep wisdom, and for the work that you're doing, for the brave, trusting, empowering work that you're doing. Uh, I can say with some confidence, I don't know whether you would want to put it on your grant applications, but I can say with some confidence that you are impacting well more than four people in, <laughs> <laughs> in the work that you are doing. I am sure everyone who are, is encountering you, members of your team, your work are being affected by the beauty of what you're doing. Thank you so, so much for, for sharing everything with us and for, and for choosing this path and listening to that voice that way back in the Black Forest of Germany was, was calling to you. Thank you. Likewise, Hannah. Thank you so much for your deep listening for your insightful questions and your wonderful presence and for the work you are doing in this world. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.
What an incredible woman and conversation. In a few episodes from now, we're going to be talking about what I call the trunk, the internal world of an organization and what it means to embed regenerative principles within that internal world. And at the center of a trunk is a layer of wood that is known as the heartwood. And Dularia may just be the most potent example I have come across so far of an organization that has etched the thriving of life onto its heartwood. Some of the things that Sharmista is able to do might feel impossible for some of us. The idea of no salaries, of deep, radical trust, of being really comfortable with real smallness, of being led by love, of leaning into cracks. But I'm really called to wonder whether in a thousand years' time, whether it's organizations like Dularia that might still be here. It might be that from the organizations around today, it's those that are able to lean in to some of these impossible tasks that are the ones that are able to go the distance. There are so many things that I'm taking away from this discussion, but for me personally, the thing that I'm going to really try and stay in touch with is the invitation to discern when it is time to plant trees and when to let the birds do it for us. I'm also absolutely going to be embracing the invitation to do some weeding and some seeding. So I wish you all the best with your weeding and seeding. And until next time, keep thriving.